Good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here with us. Um, whether that means in the room with us today or online via our live stream, I'm glad that you can be here as we do gather to sit under the Word of God together. Um, I want to just get you a special word of welcome to you if you're our guest today, again, in the room or online. We're glad that you um, have found us and hope that you find us to be um, a welcoming body of believers and a place where we do indeed um, treasure the Lord and take his word seriously um, in our time together. That's one thing that I, I feel like I should just tell you right out of the gate today. If you're new here and you're trying to get a sense of who we are and what we're about, one thing that matters deeply uh, to the people who lead this church, that's not just me, but to the people who lead this church, one thing that is just a very critical truth that shapes who we are and drives what we do Um, We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And what that means is that we agree as a leadership and we make decisions in our church based on the reality that that Scripture is enough for us. If God's going to do a work among us and in us and through us, that work is going to happen through His Word. The Holy Spirit of God uses the Holy Word of God to do the very work of God among the people of God. And so when we gather in a space like this, what we need most is not to hear my ideas or any other human's ideas. What we need most is to hear from God. If God's going to accomplish something in us, if he's going to call us from death to life in Christ, if he's going to form us and shape us and transform us into his image, and if he's going to use us as a people to shape and transform the city that we're in and even to carry his holy and precious name to the nations, that's a work that he's going to do through his word. He's going to use scripture to do that. And so that shapes everything that we do here as a church, including what we do right now. Right? I'm going to ask you now to open your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And we do that because we hope to hear from God as he speaks in the book of Ecclesiastes. Not because we hope to hear from Sharp or anyone else, but we need to hear his voice. And so we continue just to walk through this Old Testament book, which over these weeks we've been in, I think this is week nine, um, we've just seen its timeliness and relevance to this cultural moment again and again and again. I pray that we see it that way this morning. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 through 29. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive into the word this morning. Father, we thank you for the fact that your word is sufficient for the work that you've planned to do in and through us, not just in this moment, God, but every moment of our lives. Your word is the tool that you have given your church and that you use by your spirit to accomplish your saving purposes in the world. Um, And we're so grateful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You haven't left us just to, to guess or to try to figure out who you are or what you're like or what your purposes are. No, you've made yourself known. And you change us as we encounter you in your word. And so we pray that you do that here and now this morning as we turn our minds and our hearts to scripture. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's begin. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. The text begins. Now, I'll just remind you or 
inform you if you're gathering with us again for the first time in a while, the, the, the voice of Ecclesiastes, it might very well be the voice of King Solomon, or it could be a later preacher who's, who's plagiarizing Solomon's words, so to speak. And what I mean by that is he's, he's kind of summarizing and preaching to us the wisdom of King Solomon. And so when we hear that statement, in my vain life, I have seen everything, we really ought to interpret it from the voice of Solomon. And, and that's significant because Solomon, I mean, he was smarter than any of us. He was richer than any of us. He was more powerful than any of us. He was better with women than any of us. And his, you know, he just had everything that life seemed to offer. And still he looks at everything that life offered and he says, I've seen everything and it's vain. It's vanity. His life from the world's perspective by a worldly standard or definition was rich. And yet Solomon looks at all of that later in his life from the perspective that matters, and he says, it's vain. In my vain life, I've seen everything. Why is he so pessimistic? Keep reading. He continues, verse 15, he says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You hear it? There's a contrast there. There's a righteous man, and what does he do? He perishes in his righteousness. And on the other side, there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. That's Solomon's issue. That's the problem that leads him to conclude that his life and all of life is vain. Now, at the very center of most religious thought in the world and even most philosophical thought in the world, at the very center, whether you're talking about like some fringy kind of spiritualist religion, like people who you know, think that crystals speak to them, or who worship angels or even demons, or any kind of like mystic stuff, or even if you're talking about most mainline religions like Islam and Buddhism, at the very center of those ideas, and, and this even applies to a great deal of people who would call themselves Christians. At the very center of religious and philosophical thought is an idea that's common across the board. And that idea is, if I do good things, God's going to take care of me. Right? If I live righteously, then God or Allah or the Mother Earth Goddess or whatever it is that you, you think is deity out there, then that divine being is going to take care of me. I need to, to scratch its back. And that divine being will scratch my back in return. That's an idea that it's prevalent. It's out there in, in most religious systems. And even a lot, of, a lot of Christians start to buy into it. Now, often that idea is called karma. And if you walked up to your average Christian and said, do you believe in karma? They would like punch you in the face and, and push you away. Because they would say immediately, no, I don't believe in karma. That's ridiculous. Get that kind of voodoo mystic stuff out of here. I believe in the Bible. And that's what most Christians would say. But if you start to listen to Christians talk, and if you kind of like dive into how Christians think, you'll find that, that there really is quite a bit of karma that, that drives the way we think. Just think about how we respond anytime something really tragic or bad happens to somebody that we don't think deserves it. I mean, think about how we respond to the 40-year-old who loves the Lord and loves his wife and loves his children who gets cancer. 
We say, man, that's terrible. He didn't deserve that. Think about the young couple in your life group that has suffered miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. And we just think, man, why does, why does such an awful thing happen to such great people? Right, or think about the missionary who's serving in some remote jungle somewhere and she's driving her car along the road and careens off of a cliff to her death. And we just think, why did something so awful happen to somebody so good? And when we say things like that, when we think things like that, what we reveal is that like deep in our operating system as people, we really do actually believe that if you live a good life, if you keep your nose clean, and if you follow most of the Lord's rules then we expect that the Lord is going to reward us some way, somehow. We suspect that the Lord is going to favor us with a blessed life, with a privileged life. He's going to take care of us. He's going to shield us from the bad things that happen in the world. But, and this is really Solomon's complaint, like if you look at life, it just doesn't simply work that way, right? Karma doesn't work. Bad things happen to good people, to good people. And just as prevalent, good things happen to people who, who really aren't good at all, right? Just as often as you see somebody whose life is tragically snuffed out, though from our perspective, they didn't do a thing to deserve it, we see people who get away with murder and who live long lives seemingly like without any awareness of the fact that they've lived wickedly and evilly upon this earth. And that's Solomon's complaint, right? In my vain life, I have seen everything, he says. There's a righteous man, and he perishes in his righteousness. But there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Solomon says, it's vain. All of it. Now, when we realize in life that karma doesn't work, that it's, that it's a broken system, a broken idea, when we realize that as a result of that, suffering is inevitable and inescapable in life, and that it might come at us seemingly randomly, even if we live a really clean, righteous life, we still might suffer in this life. When we realize that, people typically respond in one of two ways, and Solomon knows this, so he teases those two ways out. Pick it back up in verse 16. He says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. I'll pause right there. I'm going to explain that in a minute, but like, you're going to wish that I didn't, because right away some of us are thinking, finally, a verse in this book that I can get on board with, right? <laughs> be not overly wise. I've been practicing that my entire life. <laughs> do not be overly righteous. I, I can do that. But we'll explain and see what he means in a minute. He doesn't stop there. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And then on the other side, he says, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And so he gives those equal and, and seemingly opposite instructions to us. Be not overly righteous. Be not overly wicked. What's going on here? Well, some of us, when we start to feel that life might unravel on us, when we start to sense that, that suffering might come into our lives, our instinctive response to that 
is to try to clean up our act as much as we possibly can. We want to suddenly become as righteous as we possibly can because our hope is that in being really righteous, we will kind of put God in our debt so that he feels obligated to take care of us. And so we'll like pull out our religious to-do list and we'll start to get really involved in church and we'll start to give sacrificially to our church. We'll start to serve generously in the ministry of our church and in our community. We'll, we'll start to avoid all of the obvious sins that we can think of needing to avoid. And we'll start to live as outwardly a righteous of a life as we possibly can, hoping that we keep God in our debt. It's a bit like maybe you've had a coworker in your life who performs really well for the company, but in terms of the way he or she interacts with other people in the office is just a complete and total jerk, right? Maybe you've had that, that person in your life, or at least you can imagine that kind of person, right? Their sales numbers are great. They make a ton of money for the company, but just internally they're toxic, Right? They come late to meetings that are important. They speak rudely and disrespectfully to other people. They're just a pain to deal with. And so everybody kind of secretly hates them. But because they do so well in the company, they feel like they're kind of protected from that. And so the boss would never imagine letting them go or firing them because they just make so much money that they're kind of, they're kind of free to do whatever they want to do. Well, in the same way, that's, that's essentially the, the kind of debt we tried to put God in. We try to live so righteously and live lives that are so committed to him that he wouldn't possibly kick us to the curb, that he wouldn't possibly send suffering or hardship or trial into our life because we might look at him the same way that coworker would look at his boss and say, you can't live without me. You need me because of all of these things that I do. That's exactly our mentality, some of us, when we sense that trial or hardship or suffering might come. And to us, Solomon says, be not overly righteous. Don't think that your righteousness, your, your false, self-centered, outward righteousness is going to protect you in any way because God doesn't work that way. But on the other side, he would also say, be not overly wicked. Some people, when they sense that suffering is inevitable, and the guy's not going to scratch the back of the people who scratches. Some of us respond to that by saying, you know what? I'm going I'm to forget about all of God's rules, and I'm going to live the way that I want to live. Right? If suffering might come in my life no matter how I live, then I'm going to live it up right now. And so I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to try to get as much pleasure, as much freedom, as much joy in my life as I possibly can. Because it's not going to make a lick of difference how God treats me anyway. And so we rush off headlong into wickedness. Solomon says to us, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. And see, these are the two ways that we instinctively respond to the reality that karma doesn't work. We try to manipulate God through self-righteousness. We just try to deny him completely and live for ourselves in open, rampant unrighteousness. We either attempt to be overly righteous or overly wicked. Now, Jesus knew that this was true of us, too. He told a parable, a very famous parable about this very idea in Luke chapter 15. It's often called the parable of the prodigal son. I don't think that's a great title because that seems to imply that there's one son who's in error here when in reality there are two. There are two sons in this parable, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son 
he attempts to live life to its fullest by being overly wicked. He says to his father one day, he says, Dad, I'm just tired of living under your rules. This isn't working for me. I want to go my own way. I wish you were dead. Give me your inheritance now so I can go off and follow my heart and be free to be who I want to be. And he does. He pursues the root of overly wickedness. And he goes and gets everything that he can possibly get. He fills his life with the kind of people that you can fill your life with if you have money to burn. And he quickly finds that that gets him nowhere. He winds up sitting in a pig trough wishing that he had it as well off as the pigs around him have it until he returns to the Father and receives the welcome, warm embrace of his Father. He realizes that it's foolish to pursue fullness in life by being overly wicked. But as soon as he gets home, our attention turns back to the other son, the older brother, who suddenly is irritated and cranky and self-righteous about the fact that the father has received the younger son back into his family. He says to him, Dad, all of these years I've been here slaving away for you. I've served you and I've sacrificed for you and I've done everything that you've asked me to do. Yet you've never thrown a party for me like you're throwing for my wicked younger brother. And we realize this is Jesus' point, that that older brother is just as lost, though in a very different way, than his younger brother was. He's lost because he thinks that he can manipulate his father by being overly righteous. And Jesus' point is that neither of these options work for us. Neither of these options fill us. In the end, being overly righteous and being overly wicked, they leave us to the same end, and that is misery. And so what are we to do? Well, back to Solomon's words, he says in verse 18, after saying, don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wicked, he says, it is good that you should take hold of this. Take hold of what? And from that, withhold not your hand, right? Don't keep your hand from this. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, shall survive where neither of those survive. He says we're to fear God, we're to tremblingly trust God, we're to reverently worship God. When we do that, we'll be stable and steadfast, even when life is hard and unpredictable. But we still haven't dealt with Solomon's initial problem. Why is it that there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and wicked men who prolong their lives in wickedness? Well, he continues to search for an answer to that question. He says in verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And, and that makes us think maybe wisdom's the answer. Maybe if we can just be wise enough, then we'll understand why the righteous suffer and why the evil don't. But then Solomon points out quickly in verse 20 that that doesn't work. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Friends, that right there is the very heart of the problem. I mean, that's why karma doesn't work. And that's why you can never, ever earn your way into God's good graces. Because there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and who never sins. See, sin is the heart of the problem. 
It's because of sin that none of us actually deserve anything good from God. If my life falls apart tomorrow, if everything that I hoped for, everything that I trusted in, everything that I worked to build in my life comes completely apart at the seams, then all I can do is look at a holy and righteous God and consider my own sin and realize that I've gotten nothing worse than what I deserve. See, sin means we deserve hardship. Sin means we deserve judgment from God. And there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and who never sins. And in case we object to that, in case we're like, no, no, I don't really think that describes me, Solomon immediately goes on to to prove our sinfulness to us. Look at verse 21. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. In other words, don't listen too carefully to what other people say about you, because inevitably, if you do, somebody's going to say something mean about you. But why is this, how does this relate to our sinfulness? Well, look at verse 22. He says, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. In other words, if you want proof of your own sinfulness, then you need to look no farther than right between your two teeth. Right, right between your teeth is all of the evidence you need of the fact that you're a sinner. Your words have, at various points in your life, been sinful words. You've gossiped about people, saying behind their back things that you would never say to their face. You've flattered people, saying to their face things that you would never say behind their back. You've slandered people. You've lied about them openly to, to make others think less of them Ultimately, so that they might think more of you by comparison. You've been short. You've been angry. You've been impatient. You've lost your temper. You've done all of that with your words. Man, in 2020, in a a digital age, we have to add our fingers to this conversation, right? Because we're so quick to type things about people or to people that we would never say to their face. All of these things, they, they condemn us. They prove the fact that we are sinful people. And so our words, they just confirm what Solomon has said. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and who never sins. He goes on, this is a problem even for wise people. This is why wisdom isn't a solution. He says in verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off. He's talking about true righteousness here. And deep, very deep, who can find it out? And so in other words, even wise people suffer from sin and struggle with sinfulness. And so he goes on to search and to see if if there might be anybody who's, who's not guilty of these things. He says in verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Really, Solomon, he says he's trying to figure out if there might be righteousness somewhere. If there might be someone who doesn't deserve to suffer under the hand of a holy God. And his point is that he can't find it anywhere. He concludes, verse 27, he says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. And so again, he hasn't found that righteous person. But what did he find? 
He says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So one righteous dude out of a thousand and no righteous dudettes. That's his point. And his point is not to impugn the fairer sex here. His point is simply to say, the odds are really, really bad. Humanity's batting average is really, really low. Right? The righteous people in this world are few and far between. In fact, they don't exist at all. That's the point of verse 29. He says, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright, made man righteous. But they, men and women, have sought out many schemes. In other words, we are the ones who are sorry for this state of affairs because we're the ones who have brought sin into the world. In 1908, um, the magazine The Times in London uh, sent a writing prompt to a group of very prominent English authors of the day to ask them the question, what is wrong with the world? One author wrote the shortest but profoundest possible response to that prompt. He said in his letter, back to the Times, Dear Sirs, I am, sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am, Chesterton said. See, Chesterton knew what Solomon knew. Now, the heart of the problem is us. I came to saving faith in the Lord when I was 18 years old. Now, as I grew up, um, I grew up in the home of a loving and believing mother who did her best uh, to drag me out the door every Sunday morning and to get me into a church next to her. And a lot of times she was successful at that. So it's not that I, I grew up completely outside of church and without any awareness of the kinds of things that people in churches talk about. Nor did I grow up without an understanding of the fact that I did, from time to time, sin. Like, I understood that. That's something that I heard often enough when I was a young man, that I had an awareness of the fact that, that I sinned. But the issue for me was that I, I primarily understood that sin as just missing the mark, morally and spiritually. And perhaps you've heard that as a, as a definition of sin, right? That, that sin means we've missed the mark. Like God's perfect holiness is the target and we've tried to pick up the bow and arrow and we've shot our lives toward that target, but we've just fallen short of that target. We've missed the mark. That's what sin is, or so we're told. And there's some truth to that understanding of sin, but, but here's the problem if that's your complete understanding of sin. Right, see like 16-year-old James, 17-year-old James, I understood sin as missing the mark, and I just thought, man, you know what I need to do? I need to aim better. I need to practice more so that I won't miss the mark anymore. And I heard that understanding of the sin that I didn't deny in my own life, and I just thought, man, I'm just going to work harder, and I'm going to get better, and I'm going to get to the point where I don't sin anymore, where I don't miss that mark anymore. I thought that's what I needed. And then God in his grace, the summer after my senior year in high school, a friend of mine who I now know had been praying, me for, praying for me for a long time, he asked me if I wanted to read the Bible with him. And I said yes to that, honestly, because I thought this is going to help me not miss the mark anymore. I'm going to learn how to aim better at that target. And so we sat down once a week at this little dive of a diner, and we had breakfast, I think every Wednesday morning that entire summer. 
And we just read scripture together. And it was as we read scripture together that the Holy Spirit of God used the word of God to do the work of God in my heart. And he opened my eyes to the fact that, that I wasn't a sinner simply because I occasionally missed the mark. I was a sinner because I am by nature sinful. That there is something broken in me that makes it completely humanly impossible for me to ever hit that target. Right? Hitting that target on my own is simply not a possibility. I can have a million shots or a billion shots and I'll miss it every single time. Because sin is really our rebellion against our holy and righteous creator. It's the fact that in our hearts we love things that we shouldn't and we don't love what is perfect and pure and good in the world, namely God himself. And so out of those broken and disordered loves, we'll never be who God calls us to be and we'll never live as God calls us to live. And I started to see that in scripture. And that was like a defibrillator, like shocking to life, my spiritually cold and dead heart. Because I came to understand that, that I sinned because I'm sinful, right? Like sinning is what I did because a sinner is who I was. And that apart from the gospel, that is just the reality of my identity. And suddenly, really for the first time in my life, the cross of Jesus Christ made sense to me. I mean, before this, like I always understood the cross as this like wonderful declaration of God's love for us. And it is that. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die on the behalf of sinners like us. I mean, it is a powerful statement of his love. But before I understood just how broken I was and am, that the cross seemed like sort of a silly, unnecessary, over-the-top expression of God's love. It's only when I realized just how broken I was that I realized that the cross was absolutely the only way for a sinner like me to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. It's the only way for those broken, twisted loves in my heart to get straightened out and pointed at a holy and righteous God. It's the only way for the wrath of God, which I deserved, not just for the few occasional obvious things that I did wrong, but for every single thing that I neglected to do. For every single thing that I did that was right, but that I did for the wrong reasons. For every breath that I took that wasn't breathed in delight in God and thankfulness to God. It's only when I realized what the cross meant that I saw that the cross was absolutely the only way I could be saved. It's the only way. I mean, the cross, it proves to us just how broken we are as people. Because if our problem is just missing the mark occasionally, then man, God didn't need to send his son to die. He just needed to teach us to aim better. But it's when we're completely broken that the cross makes sense because we see that the cross is the only way. It proves to us that we're so broken that Jesus had to die in order to save us. Just as it proves to us that we're so loved by God that Jesus chose to die to save us. Now here's the issue that we do need to wrestle with this morning as we think about that. In each of our hearts, there is this natural drift away from the truth of the cross. We're like jellyfish floating on the surface of the ocean. We just go whichever direction the wind and the waves take us. And we drift naturally away from the truth of the cross, which is why karma sounds so reasonable to us. See, when we lose sight of the cross, 
we lose sight of how sinful we are by nature, and it begins to sound reasonable to us that we could live righteously enough to win God's favor. It begins to sound reasonable to us that we could work really hard and make God happy with us, and then we wouldn't suffer in this life. And so, because we drift from the cross, the idea of karma begins to sound right. And so I'd like to just invite you this morning into a little bit of like honest self-diagnosis. And as we sit here and as we, as we do that, I really hope that, that you won't feel any pressure to like play church in this moment. I, I hope and, and pray that you'll, you won't feel any pressure to be dishonest because you're just being honest or dishonest with yourself and with the Lord. But I want you to honestly assess like what you think, what you believe, how you feel. Do your best to consider what you really believe is true and to recognize how you might be prone to drift away from the truth of the cross. And so as you sit there, just answer for yourself this morning. Like, how does God feel about you right now? When he thinks about you and when he feels about you, Is his primary feeling about you delight, or is it disappointment? I mean, do your best to consider what you truly believe about that. When he thinks about you, does his heart race, or does he sigh a sort of disgruntled, frustrated sigh of disappointment in your mind? Which is it? If you think that as God thinks about you, there's even a hint of disappointment, I think that means that you are wandering away from the truth of the cross. Answer this question. Why does God listen to and answer your prayers? I mean, do you believe, even subtly, that God's response to your prayers is based on the life that you're living? Like if you can just obey God a little bit more earnestly, that that's like buying a few extra lottery tickets to increase your odds that he might answer the prayer that you're praying? Or do you realize that God hears your prayers and answers your prayers only because of the cross? That on the cross, Jesus secured for you an audience with God, access to God, so that he will always hear your prayers because your prayers rise to him through the blood of his son. In your life, are you discouraged or depressed by your own failure to measure up? Flip side of that question, do you have a sense that God owes you a good life? See, those are really the same question. Do you see that? Like when we're discouraged, that that reveals the fact that we think our status is based on our performance for God, and we're just not very happy about our performance for God. And when, we, when we're pridefully entitled, that reveals the fact that our status is based on our performance for God and we feel pretty good about our performance for God. And in neither case do we realize that our status is based entirely upon the cross and what Jesus accomplished there. Do you feel angry or defeated when trials and other difficult circumstances come into your life? Friends, our trials, they always show us what our hearts are really like. 
So do trials make you feel defeated, like you're getting what you deserve? Or do they make you feel angry, like you're getting less than you deserve? If either of those are true, I think that means that you've lost sight of the cross and of the fact that your own sin required the cross. Lastly this morning, do you seldom think of the cross? Do you see the cross just as the beginning of the Christian life, the thing that you need to understand in order to get in to a relationship with the Lord? Or is the cross the very foundation of your joy, your peace, your security, your hope, of everything in your life? Friends, because of the cross, we need not be overly righteous for Christ is our righteousness. Because of the cross, we need not be overly wicked. For Christ has promised us a fullness of joy and eternal pleasure forever at his right hand. My prayer for you, my prayer for us as a church, is that we would not drift even for one single moment from the glorious truth of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, if we've trusted him in faith. Let's pray that that would be true of us. Yeah, Lord, we do ask this morning that you would help us to cling to the cross. May it be the anchor for our hearts and souls that we do not drift from. May it be the truth that is the the center of gravity in our lives that, that holds everything in our lives in orbit. And may it be to us a source of hope and joy and delight and peace, a, a hope that can sustain us through the moments when the righteous suffer even despite their righteousness and the wicked prosper even despite their wickedness. May it be a hope that is so secure and so true for us that we can hold fast to you and joy no matter what comes in our lives. I pray that in your name this morning, Jesus. Amen.